This episode of the Fastest Known Podcast is brought to you by Koros. Wearables from Koros help you explore perfection by offering the longest battery life in its class for each of its watch models. For example, in full GPS mode, you get 60 hours of battery life. That's as much as the current FKT on Nolan's 14. Or track in ultra mode to get an astonishing 150 hours of battery life, enough to get an FKT on Vermont's long trail and then some. Koros is proudly worn by many great runners, including Camille Heron, Timothy Olson, Hayden Hawks, Magdalena Boulay, and many others. Track your next FKT with a watch from Koros. Visit koros.com. C-O-R-O-S dot com. Back we are with the fastest known podcast. 30 minutes of interesting conversation with some of the leaders in our sport. And our guest today works with the Runner's Edge Running Shop in Missoula, Montana. One of the events he puts on is The Rut. And I am talking with Mike Foote. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Buzz. Good to be here. Yeah, it's always good to see you. Always good to catch up. And you've got this great background. Uh, I tend to look on Ultra Sign Up, and of course, you you go back as you know, as far as one can scroll. You go back, <laughs> and one you're making, me, you're making me feel old. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. It was. It was it's meant to be a compliment, or I know what you mean. And I note that when looks at this, you have things like uh, the rut, you know, your, your fourth in 2016, and uh, things like Hard Rock, wow, in 2017, you were second. The Bridger Ridge Run, third, that's you know, an amazing technical ridge run. North Face Endurance Challenge, you know, 41st. And you're kind of, you're, you know, you got enough speed, but you're kind of a vertical guy, aren't you? Yeah, I kind of am. I keep learning that the hard way every time I jump into a fast race. Every once in a while, I can pull out a fast race. I think the Moab Marathon, uh, it doesn't have a lot of vert, but it is quite technical. But I love that race. I've done okay in that race in the past. That's probably one of the fastest races I've ever chosen to run. <laughs> right. 2016, six, at the, and that's the USATF Trail Marathon Championship. I Correct. think... I saw you there. Come to think of it, wasn't I coming into my stand-up paddleboard and you were sitting there next to the river? Yeah, I was at uh, one of the takeouts along the Colorado River there in Moab, and here you come just paddling paddling up the Colorado. I'm like, I think that's Buzz Burrell. <laughs> that, was, that was one of these lovely encounters. Uh, that that you know, was. But, but the trail marathon there is outstanding. Like you said, Danielle Boundary, famous adventure racers of the RD. And she has three rope sections, uh, mandatory hand over hand. So it doesn't have a ton of vert, but it's definitely technical. Yeah, maybe that's why I'm drawn to it. <laughs> well, let's look at some of the uh, FKT action. You had the FKT and TransZion uh, dating back to 2013, which wasn't broken until fairly recently by Hayden Hawks. And train design, that's actually not technical at all. Just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's such a great route. I think I'd done it once before and then went and tried to do it really fast before somebody really fast like Hayden would come along. So, uh, I got to, got to sneak in and, and have it with, uh, my buddy Justin Yates there for a few years, I think. <laughs> well, the good thing about an FKT is you always had it. You know, so I think that's good tactics. You, you get in there, you get it done, and maybe someone else faster comes along, but your name is still on that board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, the Ptarmigan, uh, this is a little closer to my heart, Ptarmigan Traverse, 
classic in the Northwest. I'm not sure if a lot of other people have heard of it, so let's just uh, pause on this for a second. Um, because these technical ridge traverses are a thing out West. There's little, I mean, I don't want to offend anyone, but for example, the Prezi Traverse is kind of non-technical, even though it's super classic, very competitive, you know, in White Mountains of New Hampshire. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic route, but you come out West, then you have things like the Evolution Traverse in the Sierras, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Circuit of the Towers and the Winds. Here outside of Boulder, we have the L.A. Freeway, and the Ptarmigan is kind of in that same ilk. I mean, someone could just project all the great traverses. So tell us a little bit about the Ptarmigan. Yeah, no, I think, I don't know what it is that it's so sexy about it, but the word traverse has always like been quite compelling to me. Uh, you know, there's so many different routes that traverse a mountain range or have this like really natural point to point progression. And, uh, ultimately it just makes for a really fun way to explore a landscape. And, uh, the ptarmigan traverse got onto my radar earlier this year when my friend Stephen Nam, whom, uh, you know, I've got to give him a lot of credit. He, he lives in, uh, Wenatchee, Washington and spends a quite, quite a bit of his time in the Cascades and has been eyeballing this route for a couple of years. And, um, so he and I did the traverse together this, this July. And anyways, he, he put it on my radar and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful route with, uh, not too much, uh, trail running per se, but a lot of just moving through, uh, big mountain terrain. I think, uh, seen a lot of photos. I've read a lot of essays. Uh, I think I, I underestimated how big the, wild inner North Cascades can feel and how far out there, uh, and small you can feel in those mountains. I mean, coming from Western Montana, I feel like I get to be in some of the most wild places in the lower 48, but, uh, I definitely would now put the North Cascades very, very well within that uh, category as well. <laughs> um, right. Well, well, part of what it yeah. is, you get faked out by the elevation. Correct. Yeah, at this we, were, we were quite says, low. Like seven thousand. <laughs> you said seven thousand feet, and you go whatever. Yeah, but and, you, and you're on a case. huge glacier. Yeah, and you're on a huge glacier <laughs> and in very extreme alpine conditions at seven thousand feet, um, which you know probably wouldn't you wouldn't have the same thing in Boulder, Colorado. That's for sure. Uh, no, you're yeah. gardening at seven thousand feet here. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and you know, I think. Uh, you know, again, in the, in, in the PNW, I think the Ptarmigan Traverse is a very well-known route, but outside of that, again, even for somebody like me that loves this stuff, it wasn't on my radar. I'd heard of it, but hadn't really dug into it too much until this spring. And, uh, yeah, it just really lined up to be a, a, a super fun adventure, you know, uh, crossing about 37 miles, 12,000 feet of climbing, multiple glaciers, lots of, uh, steep and technical trail or, uh, just terrain, that you have to navigate through. Um, I'm always drawn towards projects that, uh, require a wide variety of skill sets. And this, this definitely fit the bill. Um, yeah. And, and I just, I love moving efficiently through complex landscapes is kind of what I've realized. And this was, this was a perfect example of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Glaciers are different. We don't have glaciers. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we do in Northwestern Montana. They're rapidly receding. However, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, again, in the Pacific Northwest, I'm just always surprised by uh, the the scale of the landscape. Again, I think the elevation and altitude can be a little bit misleading. Um, yeah. Right. Well, the everyone should go to, as usual, fastestknowntime.com and look it up, Ptarmigan Traverse. Of course, that's Ptarmigan with a P, as in Patrick. <laughs> and the description is a week-long off-trail high route, weaving between glaciated peaks in the North Cascades. Week-long, yeah? Okay, so you did a little quicker than that. Indeed, you guys beat the time of Lear Pantelot and Uli Steidel, were two of the fastest guys there ever were from the PNW. I mean, Uli and Lear are, are fast. Yeah, their their names lend a little cachet to the to the route for sure. <laughs> yeah, and Lear moved down to, uh, uh, to uh, San Jose, and so he's now been projecting Big Sur area. He's the expert on Big Sur now. Absolutely. Before, but before he did that, he was uh, at the FKT for me actually on Mount Olympus. Mm. But those guys are quick. That was 12 hours, 17 minutes. And you and Stephen went nine hours, 50 minutes, seven years later, this July 4th, in fact. So what's what was the big drop here? You took two and a half hours off that. Well, we're obviously just significantly faster than those two guys. Um, <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Uh, they, I think... You know, uh, going back to giving Steven some credit where credit is due, he he lobbied me hard to get out uh, earlier than later in the year. You know, there wasn't much for good weather windows this uh, this this kind of late June, early July when we were first considering it, and um, he he just kept you know hammering on me that the later the summer gets, the more travel we will be doing off snow. And uh, I mean, it's just it's just you know, talus fields and, uh, steep, rocky coals and, and, and a lot of really just picking along really rough, rugged terrain and anything that we can do that, uh, keeps us on firm, hard, fast travel snow, the better, um, the glaciers will be less open, all of these things. And so he really turned me on to it. And we essentially found a window of time that, uh, we knew the weather was iffy. I mean, we didn't really have blue skies at all. It was, I think I described it as running in a ping pong ball a lot of the day. Uh, but, <laughs> but what we did have was really perfect conditions for snow travel. So essentially just enough melting on like the, the surface of the snow to dig your foot in or to kind of dig your tread in and keep traction, but nothing beyond that. So you could really push off, travel quickly, glissade safely down from a steep coal for the most part. I mean, there was definitely exposure that we had to, um, mitigate and manage throughout the day, but we both travel on this type of terrain quite a bit. So it helped. And I guess this is a really long winded way of saying we had ideal conditions. And, uh, I think due to that, that's, that was the, the huge difference between our time in Uli and Leor's because they are obviously capable of moving through the mountains as fast as anyone. But yeah, we had a really ideal day. And I jokingly, uh, have said that because we couldn't see the views most of the day, we were um, relegated to just focusing on moving quickly and not stopping and taking it all in or taking photographs or any of that, which, you know, I, is a little tongue in cheek, but is also a little bit true. 
the ping pong ball. That's a good one. I like it. <laughs> and I appreciate your observation for the listeners as well. Uh, Lior and Uli did it on August 16th, and you did it on July 4th. Indeed, in Colorado, a number of years ago, people started shifting to the big roots in June. So mm-hmm. June normally becomes the optimal month here, like the, the yeah. Nolans, obviously Nolans is famous, the Colorado 14ers, for the exact same reasons you mentioned. As yeah. soon as you can get up the access roads is the time to go, and then you're good on snow. Yep, and a lot of the sense. early people were maybe pure ultra runners, and they weren't that good on snow. But if you're good on snow, it's way faster than rock, and so June becomes an excellent month. Yeah, I think living in Montana in the mountains, you and if you want to enjoy being out in the mountains year-round, you got to get good on snow, whether it's on foot or on skis. And so I've definitely, over the years, become more and more comfortable with just moving on firm snow, and I think that makes a huge difference, so... Yeah. Well, indeed, you uh, are a schemo racer. And if I recollect, you set some nutto record on 24 hours vert. Isn't that, tell us about that one. Yeah. So I, uh, I a couple of years ago, just got it in my head how much fun it would be to just strip away all of the uh, just just everything but the simple necessity of moving up and down a hill as much as I could in 24 hours. And um, ended up skiing 61,000 vertical feet in, uh, whitefish in a single day. And, uh, yeah, that was spring of 2018, but it is obviously since then, uh, it kind of started this little, uh, it, it was, a, so I broke a world record that had been standing for nine years. And then immediately a Norwegian, uh, Lars Eric, uh, a uh, schema racer from Norway, who's a, who's a friend, he went and, and crushed my record. And I think he did 68,000. And then of course, Killian couldn't bear to, um, not, not be a part of the fun and then just made us all look like the humans that we are. And I think he did something like 78,000 in a single day. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a footnote in the history of, uh, the schema 24 hour record, but I am, uh, also, glad to have gone for it. Cause it was a really fun, uh, training for me leading into it because I do love the vert and just being able to get out and ski long days every day in the winter is a really fun process. So, uh, it worked to my advantage just as far as enjoying the journey and, uh, motivated a couple other athletes that are a little bit stronger than me to get after it as well, which is always fun. You drew Killian into the fray. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, that's good work in my opinion. So just to clarify, is this up and down? Uh, so 61,000 feet of climbing, 61,000 feet of descending. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. there, uh, there were previously other alpine oriented records where people just did descents. They took lifts up and just oh, skied down, things right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. We've, no, we're, we, we, no, that's not right. Yeah. We've, uh, we've joked around about trying to find ways to get down faster than skiing, but I don't think there's any better way to get back to the bottom to go up again. So, <laughs> right. Well, 61 K of just climbing. I mean, just, I mean, that's a ton. And of course, skiing back down is easier than going up, but still, how were those quads at the end of the day? If I may ask. Yeah, I was screaming uh, out loud in pain at the end. <laughs> uh, we, I had a, wow. I actually didn't, I mean, everybody, nobody has perfect conditions. There's no such thing as perfect. We went through, uh, or I went through a, a very strong melt freeze cycle in the 24 hours that I had. So everything went from 
mashed potatoes to firm ice around 11 p.m. that night. And I spent the next seven or eight hours. Uh, it was not only was it really hard going up because it was I was slipping out a lot and my skins weren't keeping the traction they needed, but also uh, skiing over frozen mashed potatoes downhill uh, all night long is also not easy. So, um, yeah, the, the quads took took uh, quite a while to recover, to say the least. Okay, the typical understated description of the mountaineer. Right? <laughs> so, listeners, you can read between the lines there. Uh, <laughs> okay, Mike, I, pre- I appreciate the the classic mountaineer's understatement. Um, that's that's good. That's good. And this was this was schemo gear. This was the the super lightweight stuff. Oh yeah, the the lightest Dina fit skis and boots and whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you you skinned yourself. I mean, you you put on the skins. You took them off. I mean, it was all you. Oh, uh, I guess that that's that's an important note. Uh, I definitely took them off and skied down. But what I had was a team of friends at the bottom would like put skins on for me, so I could just make a quick transition at the bottom and eat food and go back up. So, um, yeah, that was one thing. Good. No, that's good clarification yeah. Yeah, because yeah. just bending down to get the skins off are going to be a workout after that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I like that, uh, like you said, you're mixing it up with a lot of ski mountaineering, scrambling. Have you ever done any climbing? Or is that not quite where you go? Uh, before, so I started running ultra marathons in 2009. Uh, I mistakenly just found myself signed up for the Wasatch 100 lottery in February of 2009 and somehow got in and that kind of changed the course of things. Um, the years leading up to that, I actually climbed a fair amount. I would, I would make a pilgrimage down to Indian Creek and trad climb down there and some of the desert towers and Castleton and, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, but as soon as I got the running bug, all of my, all of my gear started to collect dust and it continues to collect dust in a Tupperware in my garage as we speak. So, uh, I have that background. I know those systems, they're perishable skills and I'm quite rusty. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, you're not the guy to sell all my dusty gear to, apparently. <laughs> no, probably not. I, 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 I harbor, I harbor a renaissance in my climbing career. If only because I enjoy the mixture of, uh, I, I, you know, in all sincerity, I want to keep that skill set less rusty so that certain routes uh, can still be open to me to attempt. Uh, you know, you mentioned the evolution traverse in the Sierras. Right now, that traverse is way over my head, but um, man, oh man, the Sierra Rock and the high alpine traverses that are available there. Uh, I mean, there's few places that are more compelling, so it would be really fun to, uh, to make it down to the Sierra and play around. But I also, when it comes to fifth class movement, I want to be, I want to be comfortable on it again. And at this point I'm mostly just, uh, top roping at North face athlete summits with, uh, really good climbers. (laughs) (laughs) And don't forget in the Sierras, it doesn't rain in the summer, unlike Montana, pardon me, or Wyoming for that matter, or Colorado. Sierras are really good weather in the summer. 
Yeah, they really are. Well, I'm going to put something out here. This suddenly dawned on me. I'm going to lay it right out here, and I'll <laughs> see if I can do this. So what if someone projected the five big traverses and uh, just did them all? I, I don't know. I have to look this up. Someone should look this up. Feel free to email me if you already know the answer to this, which I do not. It's not a quiz. If I was to identify the five big Western traverses, or as we just said, the ptarmigan, the evolution, the uh, Circuit of the Towers and the Wind River Range, mm. that's pretty technical too. Down here, the L.A. Freeway outside of Boulder. And what I forgot to mention earlier, the Whirl. Uh, yes. uh, yeah, Wasatch Ultimate yeah. Ridgelink up outside of Salt Lake City. That's definitely in that class. So what if these are the five classic ridge traverses of the western United States? And is there anyone who's done them all? I bet not. Has Jared? <laughs> he seems like the one who would, Jared Campbell. <laughs> Jared's totally the one to do it, but he has not. I know he has not. He went down to do the evolution once, and you know, he's technically Jared is you know next level, as yeah. you know. He, he combines but all he's the skills. Also, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. But he's also big family man. He works. I think he told me we went down for the evolution he left work at 5 p.m on a friday night and drove straight through and started at saturday morning yeah i think i think i function on more sleep than he needs (laughs) i think so too and so i think he got a a sprinkle of rain when he was 90 percent through and had to bail yeah and then he had to drive back to salt lake city the same day so right interesting interesting story so i'm going to put this out there the five big ones, if these are indeed the five, so feel so feel free to send me an email and we'll correspond on this, anyone who's listening, and we'll throw down the gauntlet for someone to do all five of these. Nice. I will say I, I feel I feel like I have to say that as a as a Montanan uh who apparently is in a place that has less history and culture around around these things, uh I would also argue that there are about 10,000 other traverses to be had out there that um, I would like to see people opening up and celebrating new routes as well. That's something I'm always really excited about. And I love following when people have the creativity to uh, um, find a new route in the mountains, because within a few hundred miles of my home, I know that there are dozens upon dozens of worthy, worthy traverses to be had that I will never even be able to get to in my, <laughs> in my lifetime. But, uh, I, I think, uh, I always have a chip on my shoulder that places like Montana, not that we need to have that history or that attention because, um, endurance sport history definitely exists in, in higher populous areas like Salt Lake and the front range and in California. And so I, and, and I'm, I'm very willing to go down and, and test my metal on some of the routes that, have the history because there's an allure to that history and knowing the story of a place in the landscape and some of the people that have moved through it. But, um, I can't, I can't let it go that I also think that, uh, there's so many other good places that just haven't even been not, not like undiscovered, but maybe not explored within the context of our kind of speedy, efficient endurance world that we all love so much. Good call, Mike. So there's two gauntlets here, isn't there? There's, uh, you just laid it out brilliantly. You're willing to go test your metal on the classics because that's what they are. But at the same time, 
no one should forget that there's amazing things out there. And I think Montana in particular, often in this podcast, we've talked about Glacier Peak. Hmm. You know, it's, uh, I mean, granite. I'm, what am I okay. saying? I was, I was like, I'm not sure which Glacier Peak you're talking about. Yes, Granite Peak is, <laughs> right. a, is a classic. And, you know, it's like <laughs> super hard. I mean, it's just in the middle of, I'm sorry, it's not in the middle of nowhere. It's in the <laughs> middle of your home state. <laughs> But unlike Colorado, you can't drive right up the base of it in shorts and a T-shirt, go there and tick it off. Definitely not. So like you said, all, all over there, there's other options. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Mike, what, if you were going to say this, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the coolest thing you've done? Oh. Really? <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh Wow. Uh, <laughs> just pure. No, your response is that your response is an answer in itself. Yeah. You're having to think about it. Yeah. Uh, the coolest thing I've done, man, coaching high school cross country for a handful of years was really amazing. Being a mentor in like young kids lives was a really fun experience for me. Uh, I'm currently on the board of a land trust where we work really hard to conserve the places we love in Western Montana. That's pretty cool. I definitely do not, uh, I find running to be like something I'm dedicated to and a hobby, but I don't know if it's the cool, I don't know if there's anything in my athletic life that feels like it's the coolest thing I've done. I think some of the relationships I've, I've made through the community of endurance sport, are a lot cooler than the actual things I've done. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. Okay. I'll, that, yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> no, that's, that's solid. Indeed. I was listening to, uh, I think it was Jenny Simpson, hmm. you know, you know, the, the incredible, a 1500 meter runner or gold medal at yeah. you know worlds and so on and so forth. And when she was lining up, I think it was Daigu the first time she, she won the world's, her uh, husband and coach said, remember, Jenny, it's just running. That's good, isn't it? That's I think that putting that in that place makes it more enjoyable, not less. I, I absolutely uh, agree. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you another impromptu question. <laughs> we obviously didn't rehearse this in advance, but it makes it more fun this way. What is the either scariest or dumbest thing you've ever done? Ooh. Uh, there's a lot. Uh, I think <laughs> one thing I can, I can recall is, uh, when I first moved out to Montana, I went to this school at the university of Montana. I made some friends here in Missoula. They asked me if I wanted to go backcountry skiing. Um, I was like, yeah, sure, let's go. And so we went down in the Bitterroot mountains, which are just South of here. And, uh, I don't have backcountry gear, any knowledge, anything. And we start going up this trailhead. I've just got my skis on my back and I'm post holing up this trail uh and to the point where i'm i'm wallowing waist deep on in this skin track that my friends are just skinning along and i duct tape pine bows to the bottom of my feet because of course i have a roll of duct tape in my backpack because I, I i'm very prepared and uh i i pine bow snowshoe my way all the way to the summit of this mountain called saint mary's peak which is a, a well-known mountain in the Bitterroot. And the first thing I do is I want to see the view. So I go and I walk to the edge of the, uh, the, the ridge to look down into the basin that we're definitely not going to ski. We're, we're just going to ski back down the ridge, but there's this huge east northeast facing basin. And, uh, I proceed to fall through a cornice, uh, up to my armpits. 
and like just reaction instinct, whatever, pull myself out really quick and kind of roll away. And, uh, I would have fallen 1500 feet easy had I gone past my armpits that day. So that was probably one of the biggest near misses of my life. And, uh, I dedicated not probably just from that moment, but I've probably dedicated a decade of my life to snow safety. And <laughs> I was a ski patroller for a handful of years and I take uh, avalanche and snow safety and mountain travel, uh, is something I, I pay a lot of attention to and I'm very well educated in, but I also, it comes down to risk tolerance and understanding the human factor and all these other things. So I, I, uh, due to that day, I've, I've definitely taken a, a maybe a safer route, <laughs> but, uh, looking back, that was probably the closest I've ever come to really, uh, not coming out of the mountains. And it was before I knew anything, which is how it, how it happens sometimes. Well, here's another fastest known podcast challenge for all the listeners. I'm going to ask our next few guests the exact same question and see if they can top that. <laughs> I hope they can't. <laughs> We've all Good done a lot of stupid point. things. I hope they can. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty, yeah. it was just ignorance more than stupidity, but I don't know if there's a huge difference, but. Okay, well, the, the challenge is thrown down, uh, but we, we don't want anyone to, to better that one. That's what we're saying. Yeah. But duct taping pine bows on, that's, <laughs> that's pretty solid. You know, you, you've thrown down a pretty good gauntlet there. And then the old, oh, yeah, cornice, prevailing winds, northeast side. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is well done. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, somewhat more seriously, Mike, you just said, if I may feed this back, you have dedicated 10 years of your life to safety in the mountains, particularly snow safety. And that is not something ever to be taken lightly. Because, of course, as you know better than I do, a lot of ultra runners are moving into schema. They're moving into climbing and scrambling and things like that. And there is a skill set there that is levels above the skill set for ultra running. And anyone listening to this or doing that should take that seriously read, talk to someone like Mike, develop a mentor and learn what you're doing, please. Very well said. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you. My last question, which I always, this, I actually do always ask people, Mike, is what is next? What's coming up for you? Mm, great question. Uh, let's see here. I usually transition from running to skiing training around this time of year with a, a big focus on my ski season. I've been doing that the last handful of years, but I still kind of got the running itch this year buzz. And, uh, I, <laughs> I may have just signed up for, uh, the UTMB Oman race, which is a race in the middle East, uh, in late November, 80 miles, technical steep, Looks like a really incredible course. And so I'll be making a trip, uh, trip over there this fall to give that a go. And I'm really looking forward to that. And then, uh, after that, that is a little different. That is very different. Yeah. But, uh, I think it'll be good. I haven't, I haven't done a big race like that in quite some time. So I'm looking forward to it. And then, uh, really excited to jump into some, uh, schema racing locally, try and get down to the Grand Traverse in Colorado, which is a really historic schema race from Aspen to Crested, or sorry, Crested Butte to Aspen. Uh, yeah. And then some, uh, fun projects lining up for 2020 that are definitely in the idea phase more than anything. But, uh, I always find fall to be a really fun time to look into next year. So definitely sketching out some potential ideas for some fun traverses in the mountains. Right. 
Google Maps, Google Earth comes up and we, uh, the, the days get short, the night gets long and we start planning other projects. Absolutely. Mike, I very much look forward to talking with you next year and seeing what those projects are and have fun in Oman. Thank you, Buzz. I really appreciate it.